have for you is a word. Tell it. We say, welcome to our table. It was kind of amazing. They really were strangers. They looked identical to each other, but they were strangers, right? But like many public men, he also has a private side. The O.J. Simpson you've never met. You're in the good place. You're okay, Eleanor. You're in the good place. Coming up, some quick bites on Tenet, The Good Place, The People vs. O.J. Simpson, Street Food Latin America, Three Identical Strangers, and Citizen Kane. Welcome everyone to the Film and Food Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Roberts, and thank you so much for joining us again for episode 8. This is our second edition of Quick Bites, where I give my short thoughts on everything I've been watching lately. This is a great chance for me to share movies, TV shows, and things I've been catching up on in a quick format. These episodes are always mixed bags, and this week we have a new release film, documentaries, and a classic so I'm sure you'll find something new to watch or to catch up on in this episode. I also have a great film-inspired recipe from this episode, inspired by The Good Place. But before we dive into this week's Quick Bites, I wanted to say a big welcome to the Film and Food Podcast. Thank you so much for listening to our show. We're a brand new podcast that celebrates all things culinary and cinematic in film. We produce film and food reviews where we produce comprehensive reviews of films, both for its food quality and for its film quality, and we give you film-inspired recipes. We have our Quick Bites episodes where we dive into a whole bunch of TV shows and movies to recommend to you, and we've got a lot of great things coming. So if you're a film lover, a food lover, this is the podcast for you who are already supporting and listening to our show. I'm really excited to say we've already had 500 people listen to the show in just eight episodes and we're overwhelmed by the amount of support that we've been showing so make sure you stick along if you haven't go and check out our other episodes hopefully we've reviewed one of your favorite foodie films already on the podcast but if you have a favorite food and film movie well then recommend us well then go and recommend it to us get in touch with us on facebook instagram twitter on our email fans at filmandfoodpodcast.com that's fans at filmandfoodpodcast.com and we love to turn your recommendation into an episode on the show. I'm really excited to say that we've got some really great collaborations and some really great new formats coming up on the podcast. So thanks for joining us and thank you for your continued support. As per usual on a Quick Bites episode, it is just me today. I don't have any guests. I will have Beth go on to share her thoughts about this week's film-inspired recipe. But apart from that, this is just a great chance for me to catch up on on a lot of the film and a lot of the TV shows that I've always been wanting to watch. And these TV shows and movies, I don't have the time to go into a full in-depth film and food review for every single one of them. I get to share with you my quick thoughts. I hopefully get to make a recommendation um, and introduce something new into your life from the past, maybe a new release, maybe something on a streaming service that you can pop in to watch this week uh, to expand your horizons and to get you cooking. And so that is what this podcast is about. And I'm really excited because we've got a great, great lineup of quick bites of movies and TV shows that I want to talk about. And so without further ado, let's get into the quick bites. Our first quick bite is for the brand new Christopher Nolan movie, 
Tenet. Tenet is a highly anticipated latest film from Christopher Nolan, which has made headlines and controversy as Nolan was insistent on releasing this film in theaters, even in the midst of the coronavirus pandemic. There's been shifting release dates, there's been the movie being pushed back, and the general hype around a Christopher Nolan movie that rises higher and higher. Essentially, Tenet was seen as almost the savior of the theaters in the midst of the coronavirus pandemic. There's been a lot of controversy about whether theaters should be open, about whether people should be going to see movies, and thankfully I live in a country in Australia where our cases are extremely low and our theaters are open with great social distancing procedures, wearing masks, all those kind of things to ensure that I was able to go and see Tenet. It wasn't just the general public excited for this. I was also incredibly hyped up myself. I have to admit, I love Christopher Nolan. He has a reputation for being a bit of a fanboy director. He has a devoted following base um, that will basically say every single movie of his is a masterpiece and can't really take any criticism against Nolan himself. I wouldn't consider myself one of his uh, fanboy fans that stick into that sort of stereotype, but I have never not liked one of his movies. Uh, the Dark Knight was an inspiring movie growing up that kind of inspired my love of film. I vividly remember watching Interstellar with my housemates back when it came out and just being absolutely floored by it. And especially I remember his latest film, Dunkirk, which I personally think is his greatest film and had me so, so excited for Tenet. Basically, Christopher Nolan was almost peaking when he made Tenet. And so does this time-bending action thriller live up to the hype and standards of a Christopher Nolan movie? Well, before I answer, let's quickly talk details. Tenet stars John David Washington, Robert Pattinson, Elizabeth Debicki, Kenneth Branagh, Hamish Patel, and a great deal more in a large ensemble cast. In terms of the technical aspects, Nolan collaborated with some new faces on this film. Hans Zimmer was busy with the new Dune movie, so the score is composed by recent Oscar winner for Black Panther, Ludwig Göransson. We also have the talents of Jennifer Lame in the editing room who previously edited Marriage Story and frequent collaborator Hoyt Van Hoytema behind the camera. So it has a stacked cast, a stellar technical team and a time-bending action thriller plot what more could you want? And the plot is as follows. Armed with only one word, Tenet, and fighting for the survival of the entire world, a protagonist journeys through a twilight world of international espionage on a mission that will unfold in something beyond real time. Okay, with all that preamble, let's talk about Tenet. I was so, so excited to go into this movie, and frankly, leaving the movie, I had a little bit of a bitter taste in my mouth. We all love Christopher Nolan for his obsession with time. Every single one of his movies pretty much deals with time in a conceptual and a metaphysical way in terms of how he alters the timelines in his stories, how he grasps with the concepts of time and how it affects humans, and some of the more philosophical ideas surrounding time. Of course, we have the very famous mind-bending thriller Inception that uh, was nominated for Best Picture at the Oscars and is widely acclaimed as 
Christopher Nolan at his best. He is an original filmmaker and he writes he writes original creative and thrilling films that most studios aren't producing these days and he's often a breath of fresh air in the midst of reboots and superhero films and all the things that Hollywood produces. That is why he can get gargantuan $200 million budgets for original films that are usually only given to big superhero blockbusters. And this seemed to be in the vein of Memento in 2000 and in the vein of Inception, his every 10-year time-bending action thriller. And let's talk about the positives first. As I said, the technical components are incredible. Ludwig Göransson gives us a pulsating, vibrating score that never lets up and carries us through the movie and creates a lot of the tension and the propulsion that energizes the audience through the movie. It does a really excellent job in the movie. The movie is shot incredibly well. Hoyt Van Hoytema is an incredible cinematographer and you see how they use locations in this movie. Christopher Nolan flies his cast to every conceivable beautiful location to have conversations, to have action set pieces and this just means that the film is a visual treat. The plot is intriguing. It is something that I've never heard of, this plot of inversion. I'm not going to talk about it too much, but it's this concept that people can go almost back in time, reversing what has happened to alter the timelines of the story. And these people from the future are trying to end the world. And John David Washington and Robert Pattinson are armed with working together to try and stop this by using uh, this inversion time travel technique. The plot is really where this movie is going to be divisive. Christopher Nolan is somewhat known for his hard to follow plots. He never talks down to the audience and often a Christopher Nolan movie is better on the second watch as you uncover the beauty and the mysteries of his scripts as, a, as you start to get them and appreciate them on a second viewing. However, I found the Tenet plot to be an incomprehensible mess. Christopher Nolan gets credit for directing this movie brilliantly and the practical effects and the set pieces are executed flawlessly. I've never seen a concept like this executed so well and he gets credit for that. It is, I definitely didn't have a bad time. I was enjoying the movie and trying to follow on, but there was so many times in this movie where I was just going, what the heck is happening? What is going on? I don't understand. And in a movie like Inception, you can let go of trying to fully understand the dream layers and everything that goes along with that. And you are now focusing on the emotional story of Leonardo DiCaprio's character Cobb trying to go back into his timeline so he can be with his kids again. That's what makes Inception such a brilliant movie when you have such an emotional story compared with a brilliant, complex, and perfectly executed story. And Christopher Nolan almost hints at the audience what he wants them to do. One of the characters in the movie talking to John David Washington says, don't try to understand it, just feel it. However, I found that I couldn't understand the movie, but I also didn't feel anything. To me, these are some of Nolan's most flat and boring characters, frankly. We really have nothing to engage ourselves in the story. We don't know enough about these characters. We don't engage emotionally enough with the storyline. And there's a few moments in the film where Nolan is clearly trying to make you feel something, clearly trying to, you know, engage an emotional response. However, I just felt flat and frankly still confused by the big mess 
that Nolan was trying to make. This is a concerning thing for me as a Nolan lover. You know, as a big, big fan of Nolan as a filmmaker, I felt he had matured perfectly to make a film like Dunkirk, where we see all of his best qualities coming to life perfectly, and all of his worst qualities sort of being hidden by a story that suits his strengths. However, in a movie like this, it almost seems like Nolan has kind of just gone, I don't care about the critics anymore. I don't care that uh, the critics say I don't write great female characters. I don't care that the critics say that my plots are too incomprehensible. I don't care that the critics say that my sound design is terrible. I'm just going to do whatever I want. And partly I give Nolan credit for doing whatever he wants. That's why he creates such original pieces of art. However, this was just a bit of an indulgent mess. It was fun. Would I go and see it again? Maybe. However, I just don't feel drawn back to the theaters to watch this movie again because I wasn't really engaging with it as an emotional storyline. I just felt a little bit distant and you either got to have a story that you can understand or a story that you can engage with emotionally. You can't leave us not having both. And so I feel like this is one of Nolan's weakest. As I said, the sound design really, really annoyed me. Um, I couldn't hear about a third of the movie because either the score or the dialogue or the sound effects or whatever it is was just not mixed properly. And so this is a movie that you're trying to understand everything that's going on and you can't understand a third of the dialogue. So that makes the experience a bit more frustrating. And I wish that I could tell you that this is one of Nolan's best and that this will live on as a classic that lots of film students and film lovers will be discovering and trying to decipher for many years. However, it just wasn't for me. I had a few moments where I went, wow, he's pulled this together. I understand how this story has worked. And so I give him credit for those. But for me, this is one of Nolan's uh, weaker films and quite a bit of a disappointment considering the fact that it was the first movie that got a lot of film lovers back into the theaters. I don't know what's next for Nolan, but I'm a little bit concerned about where he's going. You just got to trust that a filmmaker like Nolan will continue to produce original content and continue growing. However, I do see this as a bit of a backstep for him. Also, when it comes to food, Nolan just doesn't have lots of food in his movies. He barely has anything. We have one particular dinner scene with uh, or lunch scene with Michael Caine and John David Washington, where John David Washington is trying to get the restaurant owners to pack up his food on the go. Uh, and that's a bit of a humorous, funny scene. We really don't get too much of a glimpse at the food. So Nolan, if you ever listen to this podcast, which you probably never will, please put some more food in your movies uh, because food in movies is great. And that is what this podcast is about. Okay. Wow. That was a big, big time talking about Tenet. I had a lot of thoughts about that. Um, that was probably our longest of the quick bites. We're going to move on to our next quick bite, which is the 2018 documentary, Three Identical Strangers. This documentary was released in 2018. It's directed by Mike Wardle and it is on Netflix right now. And so this was released to great hype in back in 2018. It had a really good run of going for the Oscars and was one of two documentaries that were highly, highly critically acclaimed and that missed the Oscar lineup that year. But back in the day, it was something that I wanted to watch, but I never got around to checking out. And so I saw it on Netflix and I thought this was a great time to watch this documentary. 
And what is Three Identical Strangers about? The plot is as follows. In 1980 New York, three young men who are all adopted meet each other and find out they're triplets who were separated at birth, but their quest to find out why turns into a bizarre and sinister mystery. This is one of the most jaw-dropping stories I've seen in a documentary. I don't want to spoil too much of it because it is on Netflix and I really highly encourage everybody to go and watch this, but the title does sort of spoil the main crux of the movie. Three young men by very, very strange circumstances manage to meet up together and they realize that they are all identical. And seeing three young men who look so the same and act all the same and their mannerisms are the same, their voices are the same, their taste in sport and cigarettes are the same. It was a story that is incredible to watch and a story back in 1980 that blew the world up. They were on talk show after talk show, wearing the same clothes and doing the same actions and really playing up how identical they were, but also that these men were strangers to themselves. They were all in college and they were brothers and they had never met each other. And just seeing these young men and their chemistry together as brothers was something that was inspiring and was bringing the nation together as a feel-good story of three young brothers that finally got to meet. And so the first part of this documentary is inspiring and heartwarming and jaw-dropping as you follow along as this story is retold through the lives of these men uh, later on in their lives, now in their 50s, telling the story of how all of their brothers came to meet after being separated at birth. But then the documentary takes a bit more of a sinister turn. Of course, the adopted parents of all of these young men are curious to find out how on earth were they never told that these men were part of a triplet because all of them would have taken on triplets or said they would have taken on triplets if they'd known back in the day. And this is where the documentary starts to uncover some of the reasons why these men and other identical twins were separated at birth in the scientific study of nature versus nurture of parenting techniques and where the documentary really starts to become a bit more sober and start to wrestle and grapple with a lot of the issues that face these young men as they grew up as they wrestled with their childhood, as they wrestled with their parenting, as they wrestled with a life that was snatched away, of brotherhood that was snatched away from them. And it is fascinating and sobering and also very, very concerning that there were people doing this awful thing to young identical twins and identical triplets and doing it all in the name of science. It is a fascinating and sobering look at this idea of nature versus nurture. The first part of the documentary, you are just almost thinking, wow, these men were all raised in different homes with different parents, yet at the age of 20, they all still look the same. They all still act the same. They have the same taste in a lot of parts of their life. They, their mannerisms are the same. Like, is it all just nature? Are we all just products of our genetics and products of our heritage and uh, products of our hereditary aspects of our biological nature and you know are we just living out a script that has been passed down through our genetic the documentary ends with a beautiful reflection on how nurture often will even overcome nature you know as our roles as parents as our role as friends and whatever relationships we have in our life we have the ability to help and nurture others 
into goodness, that we have the ability to overcome things that we don't have control over, our genetics and our upbringing and things that have been done to us by the nurturing and caring aspects of our parents and by our friends and relatives and neighbors and those around us. And so it is somewhat inspiring at the end to think how this story applies to us, but it also leaves us with a concerning thought about the lives that have been taken away in the name of science and the ethics of journalism and going after the truth and what that does and what effect that has on the people who are the subjects of the truth being sought after. This is almost a documentary of two halves. It is a short hour and a half documentary on Netflix. It is definitely eye-opening. It's a very incredible story. It's It concerns you, it moves you, and it is a story that needs to be told. And it's a brilliant documentary because it promoted change and woke the world up to the experiments that were going on and inspired people to go after the truth and to make sure that this never happens again. And that is the product of a great documentary. Not only are they waking the audience up, but they're also promoting further social change. So if that sounds like something that you are interested in, as I said, it's on Netflix. It's there for you. It's only a short hour and a half. And it is definitely one of the most fascinating stories I've ever seen put onto screen. It is just a great, great film. Okay, so our next quick bite and the final film that we're going to be talking about on this week's episode is the absolute classic 1941 film, Citizen Kane. Now, Citizen Kane is regarded in film circles as one of the greatest and most important films of all time. Whenever a podcaster, whenever a film student, whenever a student of film, lover of film talks about uh, their blind spots or movies that they haven't seen and they say, I haven't seen Citizen Kane, often the response to that is one of ridicule. You haven't seen Citizen Kane? Why haven't you seen Citizen Kane? Everybody's seen Citizen Kane. Um, It's used as an expression, right? The movie The Room is called the Citizen Kane of bad movies because it is like the shining example of a bad movie. So how has a movie from 1941 had such a cultural impact and still relevant and still talked about to this day? Well, I've really loved doing these quick bite episodes because it has allowed me to go and make up for some of those blind spots in my filmography. And as a lot of young film students are prevalent to do, often we know a lot about the last 10 years of filmmaking, um, all of the movies that have come out as we've grown up, but we're reluctant to go and look into the past and look into the history of film. And I'm really excited and I've really been loving going and watching classic movies for the quick bites podcast episodes last episode i watched last episode i watched lawrence of arabia and casablanca two awesome movies that i really encourage everybody to go and watch and citizen kane is yet another amazing classic movie that everybody can watch of course this is the directorial debut of orson wells who also stars as charles foster kane and wrote the screenplay with herman j mankiewicz and speaking of herman j mankiewicz I also wanted to watch this movie because of David Finch's new film, Mank, which looks at Herman J. Mankiewicz and Charles Foster Kane as they write Citizen Kane and the story around that, which is a very intriguing story and I'm really excited to see on screen. So, Orson Welles was around the theatre and film community before he directed Citizen Kane, but Citizen Kane was his breakout 
into the world. And the story is as follows. Following the death of publishing tycoon Charles Foster Kane, reporters scramble to uncover the meaning of his final utterance, Rosebud. What's all the hype about? Why is Citizen Kane regarded as this greatest film of all time? Well, Orson Welles wasn't a well-known director in the Hollywood studio system. This was, of course, his first movie. And as a brand new director and with his theatre group, a bunch of the actors in his theatre group make up the rest of the cast in this movie, they had the freedom to experiment. They had the freedom to do what they wanted to do with the story and with the filming and really is the birthplace of a lot of great cinematic techniques and ways they told the story that influenced Hollywood majorly back in the day. There's an incredible montage of a newsreel replaying the life of Charles Foster Kane after he's died and the transition of that uh, into the story is something that is beautiful and really pioneering. You have cinematographer Greg Toland who is one of the best black and white cinematographers of that era. He was doing a lot of work with deep focus which had never been done which is essentially having all parts of the screen, all parts of the mise-en-scene in focus, a technique that hadn't really been done before. And there's some absolutely beautiful uses of this deep focus where you have a character in the background, foreground, and middle ground who are all in focus. And this deep mise-en-scene, this deep framing and blocking is just something to behold and is really proficient and wonderful from a first-time director. You can really see his uh, theatre influences in the way he positions characters, to produce meaning and tell the story of this tycoon Charles Foster Kane. Of course, Orson Welles also plays the titular Citizen Kane, Charles Foster Kane, and it is a really tour de force performance. We see a boy who is removed from his childhood to live with another person, grow up into being this young idealist person who has taken over this news company, and as the years grow by, he grows more angry, he grows more disillusioned, and he is vicariously living through people in order to regain the lost childhood that he was never able to get. His final words, Rosebud, sparks the narrative of the film off as the reporter who we never get to know is going after all of these characters that used to know Charles Foster Kane and asking them, what does Rosebud mean? And we start to piece together the pieces of Charles Foster came. We start to understand his life and his motivations and the things he's lost. And Rosebud stands to be one of the most important and most influential metaphors and quotes in cinematic history. And the rest of the cast, which are part of Orson Welles' theatre group, also produce some really, really great performances. However, I think the best, best part of this movie is the Oscar-winning screenplay. Not many Hollywood movies back in the day were producing screenplays of such variety and such and such audacity in storytelling. Of course, I've already mentioned uh, a brilliant five to ten minute montage using a newsreel style format to talk about Charles Foster's background, uh, a really unique way in the time to do exposition, which obviously has influenced many, many more movies in today's world that use montage and use different elements like a newsreel or a news flash or newspapers or whatever it is to tell exposition and to tell story in a way that has the audience engaged. And the screenplay doesn't tell a story that is really complex. Really, it's the examination and the unpacking of the legacy and the life of 
this citizen, Charles Foster Kane. And the way that it is done is so riveting and so engaging and told with such vibrancy that you are really drawn through the movie. You really empathize with Charles Foster Kane, which is the key thing. If he was not someone that you would empathize with, then this whole movie would fall flat. But you see Charles Foster Kane as he's young and idealist, and as he's trying to bring about truth and virtue in the world of news reporting. And you feel sad and you feel almost disappointed as you watch over time as these virtues are corrupted and as he becomes more angry and bitter and hateful and as he dies alone. And it does explore a lot of themes of a man's integrity and truth and virtue and the importance of missing a childhood and how that childhood wound has caused this man and to try and live out and overcome this wound by by his material living and by living through his relationships, especially with women. Is Citizen Kane worth all the hype? Look, I don't think it is the best film of all time, but that is really a silly question in of itself. Film criticism is more than talking about the best films of all time. It's so hard to say what is the best film of all time. However, this is clearly one of the first great masterpieces that we have ever received in the history of film. It has some landmark cinematic techniques that have been influential in the world. It's an engaging, vibrant story with great performances. And it is something that I encourage every, every, every single film lover to go and watch. I watch this on YouTube movies. You can just buy this for about $12. It is a great, great film for you to watch, and I'm actually really excited to watch it again and unpack and just spot more and more of the brilliant ways Orson Welles tells this story. In terms of food, there's not too much in Citizen Kane. Uh, it's mostly focused on the man himself, just your usual dinner scenes, no real look at the food. However, that's really not why you're going to watch this movie. There's a lot more food coming up in our next three TV shows, our next three Quick Bites, so let's talk about those. Okay, so our next quick bite is for the TV show, The Good Place. Now, I am a sucker for a good comedic TV show. My favorite TV show of all time is The Office. I also love Community, Parks and Recreation, Arrested Development. These TV shows are comforting. They're hilarious. You fall in love with the characters. And I often will watch these shows over and over again um, in the background as I'm working or whatever it is, just because it's such a treat to go back into these perfectly crafted characters and just to see the ingenious ways that these uh, show creators create these comedy moments that speak to our hearts even today. I had already seen the first two seasons of The Good Place a few years ago, but I hadn't really caught up with the last two seasons. And so Beth and I really got back into watching The Good Place and we watched all four seasons over the past month or so as we got hooked back into this creative, brilliant show. And now this show is created by Michael Skirt, who is responsible for The Office, for Parks and Recreation, for helping on Brooklyn Nine-Nine. He's created some of the best characters, written some of the best episodes of TV available. He's created another unique, quirky, and hilarious TV show with a brilliant concept. And I absolutely love The Good Place. The story is as follows. Four people and their otherworldly frenemy struggle in the afterlife to define what it means to be good. Of course, it stars Kristen Bell, William Jackson Harper, Jamila Jamil, Ted Danson, and a whole bunch more in four seasons 
of incredible, incredible television. The concept of a good place and a bad place being the afterlife is something that is very unique and flawlessly executed in this show. I don't really want to dive into the plot points of each and every season because it feels like there are so many twists and almost a new twist each and every episode. And this gimmick of having lots of twists could become old quickly, but it is a credit to the writing of this show that they are always able to bring a new element or to have the audience go along with a new part of the story that is just perfect and seems so logical in the flow of these characters. It really is a quirky, chaotic, fun show, but at a deeper level, it is really a show about wrestling with what it means to be a good person. Can we improve? Can we grow as people? Can we as a human race learn to be better, learn to be kinder, learn to be more caring and more loving and more thoughtful about others in the way we live on earth? And the fact that this takes place after all these four people have died is something that is just absolutely brilliant. And let's talk about these four people. We have Kristen Bell, William Jackson Harper, Jamila Jamil, and Manny Jacinto as the four characters that are focused on in this show. And they all play these distinct, vibrant characters that have so much personality and so much heart. And together as a foursome, they have such brilliant chemistry on screen. And it is just a joy and delight to watch these characters grow and change and bond together over the course of four seasons. However, my favorite two actors from this show are Ted Danson as Michael and Darcy Carden as Janet. Michael is the frenemy of all of these four characters. That's probably the least spoiler way to talk about it. And he is an otherworldly being. And so Ted Danson plays this otherworldly being so well that we almost forget that, in fact, Ted Danson is a real human being who knows what it means to be human. The whole stick of Michael is that he wants to be a human, but he doesn't really understand them and he's trying to work out what it is to be a human. And so we have these hilarious moments as... Michael, you know, has a bowl of paper clips in his office and that's one of his favorite things. Or he is confused about the different parts of a human body and how they work. And it really is just a performance that has so much range and has so much texture to it. And most of the time you believe that this guy is an otherworldly being in a human suit who has no idea what it means to be human, but is trying his absolute best uh, because he loves humans so much. And so Ted Danson is really absolutely terrific, terrific in this role. He carries you through, and by the end of the series, you absolutely love Michael. His ending is incredibly appropriate and incredibly heartwarming as well. Of course, one of my favorite people in this show is Darcy Carden as Janet. Janet is a robot, essentially, who works in the good place as almost the informational system. So a character can say, Janet and she'll appear and Janet knows everything in the universe and can help them out and provide whatever they need. And the writing for Janet is absolutely brilliant. The things that they do with her character are spectacular and not just any actress could deal with the amount of challenges that this role brings about. And Darcy Carter nails 
absolutely every single one. She's such a fun character and she's just so lovable and everybody in this show is just an absolute treasure to watch. The directing is great, the writing is razor sharp, incredibly funny, but also holds the balance of talking about philosophical concepts about morality and about being good as well as maintaining the laughs and the personalities of the four characters and that is an incredibly hard thing to do. I loved every single season. Uh, the ending was really good. Um, I think they probably bit off a bit more than they can chew by the end, but they stuck with four excellent seasons. And this is something that is just worth your time and will make you question what it means to be good and how you can be a better person while also giving you great comfort, great humor, and everything you want from a sitcom, from a comedy TV show, in the vein of Parks and Rec, The Office, and all those kinds of things. And this is where our film-inspired recipe comes from this week. We are making Good Place frozen yogurt. Now, the joke in frozen yogurt from The Good Place is something that you have to watch the show to get. However, this frozen yogurt recipe is really easy to make. It's super delicious, and I encourage every single one of you to try it. You do need a food processor. So if you have a food processor, this is a very easy Froyo recipe to make. It's delicious. In Australia, we're coming up on summer. So this is a perfect recipe for you to have as the weather starts to get warmer. So let me pass it over to Beth to share her thoughts on my frozen yogurt. Okay, Beth. So I've made you banana berry frozen yogurt, touch of honey, touch of mint. Uh, in the good place, it's a bit of a joke that Froyo is a kind of average food. Now, I want to hear your thoughts on my Froyo. It is delicious and absolutely not an average food. It's so creamy. It's really yummy. Ice cream sometimes a little bit disappointing because you think it's going to be creamy and then it's not. But this is super satisfying. Just delicious. Now, Australia is going into summer. What would you recommend that our listeners eat to cool down? Eat this for breakfast, lunch and dinner afternoon tea morning tea and second breakfast too if you must it's a guilt-free snack that you can love and enjoy Yummy. well that's the seal of approval again from beth this is a great banana berry frozen yogurt for you to try at home go and try this recipe and let us know how you went email us at fans at filmandfoodpodcast.com that's fans at filmandfoodpodcast.com facebook twitter instagram get in touch with us send us photos get cooking show us how you went would really love to know and see your frozen yogurt. We've got two more quick bites to go. This next TV show is The People vs. O.J. Simpson. Versus O.J. Simpson is a limited series show in the American Crime Story series that was released in 2016 to critical acclaim, winning the Emmys for Best Limited Series and also winning Emmys for stars Sarah Paulson, Sterling K. Brown and Courtney B. Vance. It tells of the infamous trial of O.J. Simpson, who was accused of the murders of Nicole Brown Simpson and Ron Goldman. This trial was known as the trial of the 20th century, and with an athlete of O.J. Simpson's status and nature, it became one of the most important and pivotal parts of the late 20th century. This story is dramatized over the course of 10 60-minute episodes and is brilliantly brought to life and recreated for those who weren't around at the time. I wasn't even born when the trial of O.J. Simpson began, and so this was an absolutely riveting and fascinating story for me to watch 
in this series. And it's been interesting after watching this series to do my research and find out more and see how this trial has impacted pop culture and impacted the world even to this day. I knew uh, my little bit of knowledge was that I knew that this was a pretty much an open and shut case that was bungled by the prosecutors and OJ Simpson infamously walked away as a not guilty man and was released back into the world. He was not convicted of the crime of the murders of his ex-wife Nicole Brown Simpson and Ron Gold. This is a beautifully put together, beautifully written, beautifully directed and incredibly acted series that I recommend to everyone. It is riveting, it is engaging, it tells the story in a really balanced way. I know that there is a lot of public outcry over the not guilty verdict and about this man walking free from this crime that he was accused of. However, the TV show, to its credit, is able to show you both sides of the equation and really show you how this trial was more than just the evidence that was put on the table. There was racial politics, there was police brutality, there was the picking of the jury and the weighing of the jury, there was the public perception of O.J. Simpson, there was everything lined up in this case, um, how the lawyers were picked and their role in the story, how all of these factors contributed to O.J. Simpson walking away a free man. And I know that I finished this show feeling absolutely riveted in terms of the story, but also feeling this crushing weight of injustice. Um, I know for me, that was just so hard to see the victims of this crime be walked through the mud as this trial grew out of proportion and got absolutely ludicrous to the point where no justice was being served. And look, I don't want to say what I think about whether O.J. Simpson was guilty or not, but I know I definitely lean to O.J. Simpson being guilty. And it really just has you almost in the shoes of the people watching the trial at the time. You really get into the story, you get into the heads of the characters and people involved in this story. And if you're into sort of true crime, if you're into uh, a really great biography, crime drama, well then this is just one for you. It is really well produced, has quite a few good food scenes in it, some really nice dinners and food scenes. So yeah, I, I it's a high recommendation from me. It's a great court drama. It'll get you feeling and wrestling with the American police system, the American and Western court system and just get you really thinking about how justice is served in our western nations and how fragile the justice system is when real humans who have flaws are implementing the justice it's another recommendation from me the people versus oj simpson our final quick bite is something a little bit more light-hearted uh, for the foodies out there we beth and i have discovered some absolutely stellar great food content for you to watch on netflix and the one I wanted to talk about today is Street Food Latin America. This show takes you to six countries in Latin America and explores the vibrant street food culture of Mexico, Brazil, Argentina, Peru, Colombia, and Bolivia. And this is just a beautifully photographed and beautifully put together documentary series that is really the definition of comfort food television. It tells the story of incredible people who are producing rich, vibrant, diverse street food in all sorts of different places around Latin America. The stories are incredible as a lot of these people have had hardship and really, really tough times been thrown upon them and they've turned to street food, they've turned to cooking and it has been a savior in their life and they've been able to gain acclaim and been able to do something they love to 
inspire people around them and to you know take them out of the tough times in their lives Along with that, the series has a real emphasis on the food, often showing us six, seven unique street food items from these locations around Latin America that are the signature dishes of the towns that they're in. We get to know the chefs, we get to know their backstory, we get to know the heart and the story and the flavors behind the food. We see people working in the markets. We hear about the culture and the places. It's beautifully photographed. The food is mouth-watering and just makes you wanna go and eat and cook and the stories are so human and so real and is so much about the power of food, how it changes our lives and how it has been a lifesaver for a lot of the people in this show. These are unique and fresh and vibrant stories. There's a bountiful amount of food. It's just the essence of what the Film and Food podcast is about. And there's, I know there's a whole bunch more of uh, street food shows, of Chef's Table, of all sorts of other great food documentaries for you to watch on netflix but i definitely recommend street food latin america there's a such diversity in the stories that are being told there's such diversity in the food and it is definitely motivation to go and give something different a go in the kitchen and so this is a great comfort show it's a great show to come home to after a long hard day and sit down and just feel like you're transported into another place into another food culture and to just hear and empathize with some of the stories of the people cooking this great street food all around Latin America. So it's a high, high recommendation. It is something that I'm sure everybody's going to love. So we've talked about so much on this week's episode of Quick Bites. We've got great TV series. We've got the latest release in theaters that you can go watch. We've got great documentaries. There's so much for you to chew on. There's so much for you to go out and watch. Um, There's a great Froyo recipe for you to try at home. This has just been another awesome episode. We hope there's something out there that you can go and try. We hope there's something that inspires you to go and cook something in the kitchen. We've at least given you one recipe to try at home. And thank you so much for joining us. I think that about does it for this week's Quick Bites episode. In terms of what's next on the Film and Food podcast, I'm really excited to be sharing with you that we will be having Nick Charlie Key from the Fantastic History of Food podcast. And it is such an honor to have him as a guest on the show. So we're super excited for that episode. We can't wait to get that one out to you. We're also exploring some more episodes, some different new formats that we are working on getting to you soon. So make sure that you are sticking with us and we're so excited to be sharing these new episodes with you very soon. If you love the Film and Food Podcast, why not have coffee with us? Coffee is a website that allows fans to donate the price of a coffee to their favorite artists. This will always be a free podcast. We will always do this for the love of making podcasts and for the love of film and food. But if you want to support us and you want to help us with our equipment, with our subscriptions and everything we need to do to get this show out to our listeners, well then you can donate the price of our coffee. The link to that website is in the show notes and will be on our social medias. Thank you to all who have donated already and thank you to everyone for your continued support. If you enjoyed this podcast, can I ask you a favor? Can you give this a five-star rating and review on your platform of choice, especially Apple Podcasts? This is a brand new show and the way we rise up the rankings and get into the ears of the people that need to hear us is through five-star ratings and reviews. So if you can spare two or three minutes to go onto Apple Podcasts or your side of choice and leave us with a five-star rating and review, we'd be so, so grateful. We've already had 10 five-star reviews so far and three reviews. 
So thank you to Archibeth, Nona Eats, and Real Reviews Film for your for your five-star ratings and reviews. We're so, so grateful, and thank you for your support of the show. Make sure you subscribe to us wherever you listen to your podcasts. We're on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, CastBox, Podchaser, Podcast Addict, Himalaya, Player FM, Pocket Casts, Radio Public, Google Play, Deezer, iHeartRadio, TuneIn, and SoundCloud. Basically, wherever you can find podcasts, you'll find the Film and Food Podcast. And if we're not on there, let us know, and we will be on there soon. Make sure you email us. The address, the address is fans at filmandfoodpodcast.com. I'll say that again, fans at filmandfoodpodcast.com. And join us on social media, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, all at Film and Food Podcast. Let us know how you went with the recipe. What did you think of the shows and movies we talked about on this episode? Give us feedback, suggest a movie to review. The most important thing is to join the conversation. Until next time, goodbye, and thanks for listening.